just as you know, we've been asking this question about the 21st century, what does it mean to educate young people in the 21st century? I think we should be asking ourselves, you know, what does it mean to educate um, young people in the, in the Anthropocene? It's also about reimagining the future. You know, it is about um, thinking, thinking about alternative futures. Uh, you know, what could a different future look like? What decisions can we make in the present that will allow us to, um, to have a different future? Uh, the key Anthropocene skill, if, if, if we call it that, is um, reimagining the future, uh, is, is, you know, being, um, being able to, to, to think critically and imaginatively in, in radically different ways. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Cocoa Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Ford, and today's guest is Peter Sutoris. Peter has an eclectic background, been involved in so many things. He's a filmmaker, an educator, a researcher, a social development professional. He has traveled around the world, working in India, Nepal, Marshall Islands, Bosnia, South Africa, Nigeria, Jordan, and really has focused on scalability of development, of sustainability, and really thinking about the imagination and his specialty, at least in terms of his work with young learners, is about cultivating this idea of imagination. I really appreciate the fact that Peter has such a varied and eclectic background and has had so many experiences. What really struck me and shifted my thinking uh, during and after the conversation was this idea that we should imagine our futures, the very many possibilities that are there. And uh, if you've been listening and if you've been re reading some of the blogs that we've had, I'm really interested in, in quantum theory, quantum mechanics. I don't really have a physics background, so it's all very superficial stuff. But this idea of probabilities and, and the futures that we have, if we create our own futures, we are no longer submitting to the meritocratic system that says, work hard in school, work hard at university, get a job, work hard, make sure your kids go through the same cycle. We're breaking beyond that. We're breaking beyond that mold, thinking about the world maybe in different ways in terms of how we fit in it, our connections with life, the post-humanist idea that we need to rethink maybe our value system to think about more of a collective rather than singular individualistic paths. There's a lot that's there. And this idea of writing the story of our futures is very powerful to me particularly given the fact that the main trope in, you know, in, 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 the, in, uh, in literature is a character, a protagonist, goes through an experience and is changed as a result, which is really what education is all about, going through an experience and changing as a result. And my definition of learning is just that, when an experience changes your behavior in another experience. And, and those who have read and, and listened to uh, my thoughts on uh, assessment and how learning can only be measured post facto after the experience, not always on the spot, not always, I didn't say it couldn't be done, but not always, then this is really what we're doing. We are writing our possible futures, and that is the story that we are. Now, there's more to think in terms of whether or not we should be the protagonist of that story, whether or not it keeps us in terms of human-centered, student-centered, but maybe we exist in terms of ourself, our um, consciousness within the greater universe, uh, within the greater sphere of all life. I mean, these are just inchoate thoughts. There's just things that, that are going on in my head, but I really want you 
um, to please uh, pay attention to, to so much of what Peter has to say that, that breaks the mold of uh, what um, uh, many educators are saying with the, with the common meta-narrative and, and, and looking at a very um, a special um, and, uh, and, and really cutting-edge way of thinking about it. But I'll leave it there. I've talked enough, rambled enough. I'll leave space for my conversation with Peter. Well, thanks, Peter. Thanks for being on our podcast and being a contributor. Uh, I came across your article in, I guess, uh, beginning of February that was forwarded on to me by uh, Tom Markham. Uh, you wrote about Anthropocene skills. I was really taken by your article and some of uh, what it mapped out and, and some of the, the connections that you made and, and also the thinking that, that came across this. I wanted to speak with you about this and some of your work and your book. Um, so looking forward to, to getting an idea of, of, of where you're coming from and, and some of the ideas that we don't often hear in K-12. Um, but I'll start off with a question. Who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Okay, well, thanks Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, you know the opportunity to, to speak to you. Uh, who am I? Well, I, I am uh, someone who is trying to chart a, a bit of an unconventional trajectory, I suppose. Uh, I am a part-time academic. Um, but I'm also part-time an educator, part-time filmmaker, part-time um, also working in policy consulting. So I suppose I try to make a difference uh, in, in, in various different ways. Uh, I've not found a career path um, that um, is conducive uh, to, to actually making, making a difference in, in the way that I would ideally like. So I um, sort of attach myself to the various projects and um, try to... Um, yeah, try to make a difference uh, both by talking to others, uh, by, by helping others learn um, in ways that maybe are a little bit uh, more unconventional, um, but also by trying to influence um, policy, the policy conversation, um, particularly around education, education for sustainability. But my research is um, somewhere at the intersection of anthropology, um, education, and sustainability, uh, you could you could say. Uh, I'm particularly interested in um, the ways that young people imagine different futures and how this happens in different cultures. Um, you know, so, so really trying to trying to think about uh, you know the future uh, not as something that's uh, sort of predetermined, uh, predefined, uh, but as something that in itself is a um, you know, product of cultural processes. Um, and um, and values that a particular society might might share, um, and to what extent that allows uh, for for agency. You know, to what extent are we actually able to shape the future? Uh, are we simply just uh, sort of passengers? You know, in the, sitting in a back seat, uh, and someone else is 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 driving. Someone else is determining the shape. Uh, you know, of where the future is going, or are we ourselves actually? Um, in, in some way able to shape the direction of where the world is going and, and to actually change that, that future direction, that future trajectory. So that's really the, the central sort of key question um, that, I'm, that I'm asking my research these days. Uh, but I actually came from uh, a film studies uh, sort of background in, in a way, because my, my first book, which came out five years ago now, uh, was called Visions of Development. Um, was actually about the imagination of, of development in India after, after World War II in the sort of immediate post-colonial moment when India became, became independent. Um, and I was, I was really quite interested in the, the ways that development was defined and, and projected to the population at large by the political elites. Um, 
and this was done in part through film at the time um, the the Indian government was uh, producing you know literally thousands of short films that they were screening all over the country um, in, in an effort to to basically sell the particular model of development uh, to the to the country and that model I thought was quite problematic and that then led to the to the book and basically looking at um, some of the flaws in, in that model. Uh, and so then this really uh, then led me to, to, this, to this question of, okay, let's not just think about how people thought about the future in the past, but let's think about how they think about it in the present, because that is when we actually might be able to influence things. So I know you wrote the article on uh, tertiary education on university, but you've got quite a bit of background in secondary education. I ask all our contributors the same question so that we can have a shared understanding of what learning is. I'll ask you this. How do you define learning? It's a, it's a hard question. I, I think as an academic, I, uh, I am often in this mode where I critique things, right? So I critique other people's definitions of uh, learning or education. Um, I think in, in academia, we are oftentimes not really encouraged to to offer up alternatives because then that makes us vulnerable to critique. Um, so this is something that I um, I try to um, uh, I, I try to sort of get past this in in, in my work and oftentimes uh, encounter resistance <laughs> in, in 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 doing so because anytime you embrace you know a particular model or a particular idea, um, then that means you know that that you are doing so at the exclusion of other models or or other ideas. So with that caveat. Uh, I would say that learning, um, uh, to me, is uh, is an interaction. It's an interaction with the outside world. Uh, it is uh, it is never a one way uh, process. Uh, it, it's um, always relational. Uh, it's always about about the relationship, you know, between um, what I, as the learner, um, might be thinking or assuming or hypothesizing about the world um, and the, the sort of inputs that I get from the, from the outside world. Uh, so, so it could be about me confirming a particular hypothesis or a particular thought that I have about, about the world, but it could also be about the world um, stimulating me to come up with a new hypothesis or a new thought that maybe previously I, um, I, didn't, I didn't have. Um, but I think for me, what is what is key is that um, that learners are never blank slates. You know, they always come uh, with um, all kinds of assumptions, all kinds of uh, pre-existing ideas. They, you know, they, they come uh, out of a cultural background that shapes how they how they think um, about about the world. Um, and I suppose one other thing that I would that I would say is that learning is not just about the rational side of who we are. Uh, I think it is it is also um, about um, emotion. Uh, you know, it is about emotional emotional responses. Um, I remember uh, doing an interview with a um, with an environmental activist in in South Africa sometime sometime back. Um, asking them pretty much this this same question, uh, asking them you know how they define the role of the school, so slightly slightly different question but related. And what what this activist told me was that um, sometimes um, rather than you know thinking rationally about uh, what we might do, for example, uh, and then acting on that and experiencing an emotion in the process of acting, it, we can actually reverse the the process and we can think about having an emotional impulse 
um, you know, so I might, I might feel uh, like taking a particular course of action. I may not be able to rationally explain why uh, that is the case, but um, uh, maybe that explanation comes afterwards, right? So maybe I follow that impulse. Uh, maybe I trust myself. I, I trust my emotional self um, that it, it maybe knows something or it is aware of something that I'm not yet consciously, rationally aware of or, or not able to formulate as a, as a sort of rational thought. Um, and following that impulse then leads me down the path of uh, being able to understand, you know, why I felt that emotion in the first place, um, you know, before, before I acted. And I think this, again, is something that is largely discouraged in our education systems. You know, we, we think of acting on emotion as uh, undesirable. You know, we, we tend to uh, really regulate ourselves uh, in, in, in ways that, uh, that discourage that. It's like, you know, if you, if you don't know why you're acting, if you're not able to articulate it, you shouldn't act. And I, when I was talking to this activist, I thought this is, this is really quite interesting, sort of turning the conversation on its, on its head. Um, and I do think that there is a lot to that. And I, and I do think that, um, you know, in, in thinking about learning, we do need to think about um, other uh, elements of ourselves than simply just our our rational rational sides, um, and so you know emotion is is also very important. I couldn't agree with you more, and and it's um, it's interesting you say that because it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. This fact that there's this Cartesian dualism between the mind and the body, uh, and how so much of the work that's done is about collecting research and presenting the data and and showing academic rigor and so forth. But so much of the motivation comes from, just like you said, not knowing why we're interested in something, but feeling, feeling it inside. Something's not right, or, or this is exciting. And, 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 and that will push towards different boundaries by accepting this than it will just by keeping it so cold. And in fact, everything that's done outside is, is always appeals to emotions, right? Stories are emotional. And, and that's the oldest form of teaching through stories rather than you know trolling google for for these kinds of things so so what you're saying is is is, is uh tremendously um uh, interesting and i think it hits home uh and we need to think about quite a bit um i i want to talk to you immediately then about this uh, idea of of these anthropocene skills could, could you maybe explain a little bit what the anthropocene is uh and and how skills within a school and education context might fit with the anthropocene sure Okay, so, so the Anthropocene uh, is a concept which comes from geology. Uh, it's the idea that we have entered a new uh, geological um, epoch, uh, new geological era, uh, which um, is characterized by human influence. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the idea that basically humans have now become a force of geological magnitude, um, which um, is still, I think, maybe in some circles contested, but I would say that, uh, you know, by and large, certainly within geology, I think that there seems to be a consensus emerging that actually this is this is the case. I think there's still a debate about exactly when it might have began, uh, but I, I do think that most most people now would agree that we are already in the Anthropocene. Why I find that that concept quite interesting is that is because when we look at conversations around education. Uh, we uh, hear a lot about 21st century skills. So we, we hear about the sort of, in my, to my mind, you know, very arbitrary marker between the 20th and the 21st century as somehow this dividing line 
um, you know, where, okay, now that we are in the 21st century, we have to do education differently. There's something about the 21st century that, um, that means that education's role in society has changed. Um, but to my mind, the Anthropocene is a much, much more significant uh, marker. Um, you know, it's, it's something that um, is, if, if we think of sort of the history of the planet and, and history of, of human beings, um, you know, it, it might just be sort of the, the, the single most significant event in a, in a way, um, you know, entering, entering this, um, this period. And yet there is virtually nothing uh, in our education systems um, that reflects on that. So, you know, eventually textbooks might be rewritten and children might be learning that, you know, we are no longer in the Holocene, we are now in the Anthropocene. Um, and that might be the extent to which uh, the education system responds to us entering the Anthropocene. But I think that there is a, there's a much more significant philosophical question, uh, just as, you know, we've been asking this question about the 21st century, what does it mean to educate young people in the 21st century? I think we should be asking ourselves, you know, what does it mean to educate um, young people in the, in the Anthropocene? And maybe I should also uh, mention that the Anthropocene also is, is uh, a contested concept um, among um, sort of scholars uh, in the social sciences and the humanities. Um, you know, it certainly is a concept that, um, uh, you know, is, is problematic in, in some ways because for example, it assumes, you know, it homogenizes all people, right? It sort of assumes that we are all one and that we are all somehow equally responsible um, for uh, the, the level of environmental change that is occurring uh, and that is, you know, based or that is caused by human activity, um, which, as we as we know, of course, is not is not true. There are varying levels of of responsibility for that, and lots and lots of people in the world, uh, both those alive today and and those um, alive previously, um, were, if you know, if if you want to use this language, you know, they, they were more on the side of the victims of the Anthropocene than the perpetrators of the Anthropocene, and so to then sort of throw them all into this this one basket and to say okay we as as human beings as a species are responsible for for example climate change um you know is is a little bit little bit problematic and it's it, it sort of lacks um the granularity that uh, would allow us to to see the the distinctions and differences so so there have been alternative uh concepts uh proposed you know um the anglocene for example is an, is, is one concept right because of course the the us and the uk historically have contributed the greatest share um in um you know in, in green in greenhouse gases um and so therefore you know they might be the ones that that you know um bear disproportionately the, the responsibility for entering the anthropocene uh, but um the, the reason why I still stick with the Anthropocene, even though I am aware of those criticisms and even, even though I agree with many of them, um, is that I think what is so interesting philosophically about the Anthropocene is that irrespective of the responsibility question, you know, and, and who's, who's done what and, you know, where, where the responsibility lies, uh, we all share this predicament of uh, living on a planet um, that is um, in danger. In, in many, many ways. And uh, that, is, that is a truly universal shared um, characteristic of being alive today and, and will continue to be so. And so this also affects people who may not be born yet. Um, and so in that sense, you know, the, the Anthropocene is a truly all-encompassing um, phenomenon. 
and uh, and that's the reason why I find it to be a helpful concept and a helpful term, even as it comes with its you know colonial um, baggage. I, I find it to be something that in conversations about education and, and learning, um, maybe maybe has a bit of a shock value. You know that it can sort of shake us uh, out of complacency and and thinking in new ways about what the role of education should be. So let's talk about this new role of education. What some of the skills that education, as we move forward um, uh, towards uh, towards having a new concept of what it, it, it means and looks like and its purpose, what, what does it look like in, in your mind, in your imagination, in, in, in the way it could come together? Mm-hmm. So let me, uh, just so that the conversation isn't, isn't so abstract, let me maybe ground this a little bit in, in an example. Um, that that comes out of my own my own research. Um, what I'm what I'm arguing, you know, in, in this this new book, educating for the for the Anthropocene, and what I've um, observed, you know, over the last few years that I've been that I've been working on this, is that um, in many ways we don't have to reinvent the wheel, uh, and that there are already uh, groups of people who are doing educating for the Anthropocene. They obviously they may not call it that. But in the way that I define it, or in the in the way that uh, this this sort of line of thinking, this train of thought that I was just just expressing, you know, in, in the response to your previous question, um, that that is consistent with that. Um, and one example would be um, would be grassroots um, environmental um, social movements that um, are operating in spaces that uh, are already experiencing some of the some of the dystopia of the Anthropocene that maybe the rest of us uh, who are lucky to be living in parts of the world that are not as affected just yet are not experiencing yet uh, but if you are living um, in, a, in a place that is um, uh, that is really experiencing you know unprecedented levels of, of environmental threats um, caused by um, the particular type of modernity that we are living through, then that really forces you, uh, if you are an activist, to, to reflect on that and to think about how did we get here and how can we um, you know, prevent maybe the rest of the world from, from getting to this point? Um, and what does that mean uh, when, when you are a young person? You know, how, do you, uh, how do you talk to a young person about, um, about you know, this, this uh, predicament that your community um, finds finds itself in. Um, so one of one of the places where I've where I've done research is in um, South Durban in in South Africa, uh, which is one of the most um, polluted places on earth when it comes to air pollution. Um, it is a um, heavy sort of sort of it's, it's a hub of heavy industry linked to the port of Durban, which is the biggest port in, in Africa. And historically, uh, you know, linked to uh, racial segregation. Uh, so you have uh, communities of people of color living in the vicinity of these heavy, heavy industries that surround the port, um, who are basically seen as, or historically have been seen as, essentially disposable. You know, these are these are people who are going to be working in these industries, keeping these industries going. Um, but uh, we don't really care about their health. You know, we don't care about the air they inhale or the water they breathe or the water they drink. So, um, so that situation has, has led to the emergence of, um, of an environmental grassroots movement, um, you know, the, the, the South Urban Community Environmental Alliance, 
which um, I have studied and I have studied the education potential of. Uh, so to try and understand um, what is it that these activists are doing that we can think of as, as a way of educating for the Anthropocene. And you know what I have what I have found uh, reflected in their in their work is that they're not simply just critical and saying okay you know these are the problems that have led us down this this path and this is the reason why South Durban our community finds itself in this predicament. Um, it's it's also about reimagining the future. You know it is about um, thinking thinking about alternative futures. Uh, you know what could a different future look like? What decisions can we make in the present? that will allow us to, um, to have a different future and that will also maybe allow us to uh, sort of warn the rest of the world that this is not a path that they want to follow um, because we are already experiencing what that, what that looks like uh, in, in our community. Um, and so uh, that, that idea, which I suppose we started with, you know, of, of imagining and reimagining um, um, the future uh, to me emerged as a key element of what not just this particular activist group, but also other activist groups that I've researched um, of how they how they operate. And, uh, and I think what also appeals to a lot of young people about these groups is that it really stimulates um, their, um, their imagination. Um, I've sort of anecdotally, I mean, you know, it's not something that I've done uh, extensive research on, but anecdotally, I've observed that there is um, you know that there is a period uh, for for children in their lives when they are uh, when they tend to be sort of just innately imaginative and they tend to um, you know think about the future of the world in radically different different ways um, and then there is a period when through education through schooling that um, radical imagination or reimagination sort of gets beaten out of them. You know, they, they sort of get slotted into this um, system of schooling, which is based on a very particular understanding of the future and of where the world is going and where, and you know, and the role of these young people in building that, building that future, uh, you know, as opposed to designing it or, you know, changing its shape somehow. And this is then something that um, in, in, in a way becomes, you know, suppressed. In these, in these young people. So they might have this sort of natural drive towards uh, radical imagination, what I call radical imagination in my work. Um, but ultimately that, that ends up uh, you know, being, being just a memory, I think for, for many of them by the time that they're done with their, with their schooling and they're entering the workforce, you know, they're not, uh, at that point, many of them are not questioning and, and not trying to reimagine the future. They've accepted that there is a particular shape of future that we all participate in building. So the, the key to, to, to me, uh, the key Anthropocene skill, if, if, if we call it that, is um, reimagining the future, uh, is, is you know, being, um, being able to, to, to think critically and imaginatively in, in radically different ways about what the future might look like, both for me personally, for my community, but also for the world. How does one go about reimagining the future? And, and I know you specify this as futures, right? Different possible possibilities, different options. How does one reimagine the future? And specifically, how does one learn now or learn in the present for what might be in the future, which is clearly unknown and, and, and imagination? How do we prepare? How does this work? And how does this happen at an individual level as well as, as a, in a group level? Well, I think it's it's quite individual. I, I'm not sure that there is a, 
that there's a sort of a silver bullet um, in, a, in, in a way. Um, but in, in my own work, um, I've, um, I've used uh, you know, a variety of, of uh, methods, you know, research, research methods, I suppose, to understand um, young people's uh, imagination. And those methods were also designed to, uh, to maybe stimulate that imagination as well. So they, they were not simply just about studying something, but also about actually intervening uh, and, and, and trying, to, uh, trying to maybe create some kind of a positive, positive difference. Um, one of one of the the methods uh, was very simple. Um, you know, it was about uh, what I what I called the the, the temporal arc exercise. Uh, it's about uh, making a drawing of uh, what the world looked like a hundred years ago. You know, the, the local community looked like a hundred years ago, and a drawing of what it might look like a hundred years from now. And what was very interesting um, about that uh, was that I found that many, many children, again, you know, before they sort of reached a certain a certain age when maybe they, um, you know, they they were sort of uh, brainwashed, you know, into a, a singular model of the future. But before they they sort of reached that point, I think um, you could actually see a lot of similarities, you know, between between the two pictures. Um, for for a lot of children, I, it was something that I wasn't I wasn't really expecting, and and that sort of really really struck me um, that that many many children are not thinking about the future as you know this kind of technological um, you, you know sort of uh, Silicon Valley type um, type model of what the world might look like, um, but they're actually uh, sort of "Quote unquote recycling, you know, elements of the past, and how they in how they imagine the future, and so it was this this sort of a composite picture where it wasn't about some kind of a romanticizing and idealizing of how people lived in in the past. Uh, it was about taking specific elements out of that uh, life that we imagined they might have had, and and trying to return back to them, um, and so in particular." The you know the relationship with the natural environment you know the, re the relationship with the non-human um, was to, to me was 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 very clearly reflected in this um, that the children instinctively uh, oftentimes would um, would recognize that you know that relationship to the non-human that that we have had in the past. Um, is no longer there in, in in the same way that 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 it once was, and that in the future, you know, what we should do is actually return to that to some to some extent, and it doesn't mean throwing away uh, all of the gains in science and and technology and and, and so on that we've made along the way. It, it just means perhaps integrating those those two things, you know, somehow um, somehow creating this kind of a composite future that that incorporates elements of the past as, as well um, and of course you know it's it's hard for me to say to what extent this particular um, exercise you know the way that it was set up you know that the children would first draw the past and then draw the future to what extent that set up encouraged um, this this way of thinking and so to what extent I as the researcher was sort of uh, Directing children in in this in this in this way, you know that 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 I gave them this setup, which encouraged them to reach this conclusion. Uh, that's you know uh, obviously very difficult for me for me to know, um, but I but I did I did certainly get the sense in my work that 
um, that this wasn't uh, something that that uh, would entirely originate uh, in in you know in my intervention. That it was something, you know, to sort of go back to my definition of learning, right? That that in that exercise, what was happening was a form of dialogue, a form of interaction. That it was relational. That these children might have had some kind of an impulse or or a thought around this idea of um, you know of linking the past with the future. And maybe the exercise gave them an outlet or an opportunity to test that hypothesis or to, um, you know, to, to think in more concrete ways of what that might look like. Um, but I, I certainly did get the sense that there was already something in there, uh, you know, previously. And so I think this is one example of uh, of a kind of dialogue that you that you might have with a with a young person. And I think the uh, importance of visual expression here is is really key as as well. I think the future is something that um, you know even even as adults we don't necessarily have the the vocabulary to to think or talk about the future. Um, I think the future is for for a lot of us is is a is a visual phenomenon. It's something that if you think about visually in in our minds we might have a an image that we conjure up in our minds when we think about possible futures. Translating that into words uh, may not always be possible, and and so I've certainly found that uh, visual uh, visual expression is uh, is as just as a medium, you know, is is very important. So aside from drawings, I, I also worked with young people on um, short observational films uh, where they would um, you know be trained in in the use of of video cameras and they would. Uh, make these these um, observational short documentaries about the communities in, in which they lived, and that also was a very very interesting exercise because it um, it really um, sort of led to the question of you know what is it about our community that we actually want to capture you know what is worth capturing what is worth preserving, um, which then you know is linked is linked to the idea of of the future. But again, it was the visual nature of the exercise. Um, you know, using using images and sound uh, to to convey something, rather than uh, you know having a conversation or uh, or reading a book. Um, so I think um, you know I I certainly wouldn't consider myself an expert on you know how to how to teach someone uh, or how how to how to educate someone, how to encourage learning about different kinds of futures. I think it's it's an area where probably there isn't enough research and there isn't enough, we don't actually know enough uh, because we don't often think about education in those terms. But certainly in my own experience, uh, I would say, you know, those those two things that I was just mentioning are key, um, you know, the visual expression and uh, the, the kind of dialogue, uh, you know, the sort of relational uh, element of, of, of that process. I find that's absolutely fascinating, the part about the dialogue, because it is a dynamic, as you mentioned from the very beginning, between us as a self and, and what we interact with, the context, the people, the, the animals, the, the whatever it might be. Nothing exists in isolation. Um, the, the, I guess the question I'm going to ask is something that you brought up in your article, which is simply, and, and many people have talked about this in the past, but the, the imagination, by the time they get to secondary school, it's all gone. Where, where do you see this? Uh, where, where, where does the break happen? Is it gradual? Is it immediate? What, what are some of the reasons in your views for, for this imagination being completely evaporated by the time they, they get a bit older? 
I think it's, uh, you know, context specific uh, to, to some extent. Um, in, in the contexts uh, where I've done my research, you know, I mean, those, those were contexts of, you know, poverty, um, contexts of um, a myriad of, of um, social, social issues um, that, um, that young people face, uh, you know, both, both as children and as adults when they, when they grow up. And I talk about, I talk in my work about this idea of um, slow violence versus fast violence. So, you know, slow violence is, is this um, concept that, you know, Rob, Rob Nixon has uh, famously coined in his, in his book, where he basically argues that a lot of the, you know, the, a lot of the environmental decay that we, that we see is a form of slow violence. It's something that is not um, observable in, in real time. It, it lacks the kind of spectacle of you know the kind of violence we we might see in in the daily news. You know where, um, you know we 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 see something that we can immediately understand. Okay, there's an act of violence that happens, and this is worth paying attention to. It's not quite so straightforward with um, with environmental decay, uh, which sometimes unfolds over generations. Um, and so, the idea that uh, you know uh, we have fast violence that captures our um, captures our imaginations, you know, captures our, our attention uh, in a sort of, on the sort of day-to-day -day basis. Uh, for some young people, that might be the case, you uh, uh, know, in, in, in a very visceral way. So, you know, a school in a township in South Africa, uh, like, like one of the schools where I did my research, um, would, would be subjected to spectacles of fast violence on a daily basis. And that certainly is not an environment that is conducive to um, you know, thinking about you know reimagining a different world because you know your your resources, your mental resources go into simply just trying to survive, you know, in in the world that you currently currently inhabit. And so I think in a context like that, um, that is certainly a big factor. And I think it's it's probably a factor also in in places where maybe the spectacles of fast violence are not quite so visible. So you know, even if you live in a um, you know, relatively "quote unquote" prosperous, "quote unquote" safe um, environment in a so-called developed country, uh, you still are subjected to a constant stream of news of um, of information about what is happening in the in the world, and a lot of that tends to focus on fast violence. So I think even if maybe you are not um, feeling viscerally affected by it still a lot of your mental resources uh, just just by the, the the virtue of the kind of information with which we are bombarded will um, steer more towards fast violence and this this sense that you know this is what we need to deal with uh, you know rather than thinking about the future and maybe realizing that there is some kind of a slow violence also occurring in in the world and that uh, the way we think about the future needs to address that slow violence so I think that's one one level, uh, one one part of the answer. Uh, the other part, of course, has to do with the education systems themselves, and you know the, the way that we um, we actually teach um, young young people. Um, this is also uh, an area that I've researched quite quite extensively in a number of countries, and certainly there is a similarity between education systems. Um, I think I think globally, you could say um, that there is a um, uh, there is an assumption that the world is uh, basically 
you know, a uh, capitalist um, sort of, or uh, you know, that the world is that the world is functioning on the the basis of transnational capitalism and increasingly neoliberal transnational capitalism, um, and that it is um, uh, it is it is fueled by uh, infinite growth, uh, and that infinite growth is what is desirable, and that um, if there isn't growth, you know, so if there is a period of time, for example, when a particular economy isn't growing, this is a problem. This is a pathology. Uh, now, these these uh, this kind of language that I just used maybe isn't used in a in a primary or a secondary school. Maybe it's used in a in an economics course at university. But when you look at how the um, the way that we teach young people in primary and secondary schools, um, you know the kind of assumptions behind that behind that teaching, it is very much uh, driven by these these basic um, sort of underlying ideas of uh, you know how the world functions and how it should function, how it should continue to function. Uh, so we may not talk to children about infinite growth, but when you actually look at um, their textbooks, the idea of infinite growth is all over those textbooks. So, um, so I think that is that is another another part of it is that is that what we what we teach uh, is uh, is basically a singular future. It's a singular narrow future. Um, that um, as young people, you know, the, the children who are going through education are expected to, um, to contribute uh, to through, you know, becoming part of that system. Um, maybe, maybe to just, just very briefly, you know, to go back to what I was saying earlier about my first book, uh, Visions of Development, you know, where I was talking about this idea that you had you know, the government in India in the sort of post-independence period trying to sell a vision of development to their population. The, the argument that I made in that book uh, was that one of the really major flaws in, in what they were trying to do was that they had this huge polarization between the, the so-called experts and the so-called masses. You know, that you've got, you've got a relatively narrow self-appointed elite in a society that decides what the shape of the future is going to be. And then you've got the rest of the society, which is expected to follow in that model that this self-appointed elite um, decides for them. And so I argued, you know, that this was one of the one of the reasons why maybe the project of development in in India uh, in the decades following independence wasn't quite so successful, uh, because the, the lived realities of people were actually very different from from what these technocrats at the top envisioned the future to be. Um, and so there was this this major disconnect, and I think. What we're trying to do through our education systems now, in some ways, is is very similar. We've got a you know a group of technocrats, you know, a group of uh, more or less self-appointed elites that shape um, the content of education and uh, try and project that through the education system uh, to to basically encourage um, everyone else in in society uh, to to become. Uh, the sort of cogs in in the machine that they are that they are designing. Um, maybe this isn't so in some of the really elite schools, you know, where we talk to children about being leaders, about being, uh, you know, decision makers. Uh, th those contexts maybe do encourage, to some extent, uh, you know, some kind of independent thought and, um, you know, some some sense that uh, 
you know, you, you're, you're going to be a political agent in your own right. Um, but I think uh, even, even there, you know, uh, we are basically trying to, uh, to sort of um, continue creating this, this self-appointed elite, right? So those people in those elite schools might then go, go on to be the ones who then keep designing that machine that then they encourage everyone else to follow in. So, so even, even that kind of political agency or independent thought, it's still confined to this really bifurcated, polarized, um, model model of society, you know, where it is the decision makers, it's the leaders and the followers. So, so I think that is also a big a big part of um, of what happens and and where um, that imagination just sort of gets gets pushed out. Um, I I wouldn't um, claim to know, you know, exactly at what point it happens. I think in my in my experience, it is uh, it is somewhat of a gradual process and it is again you know context specific um, and so there are I think many factors that uh, that that um, impact on it but um, I would say certainly certainly by adolescence you know you you see uh, little evidence of that of that imagination that uh, children once once had unfortunately and I guess it goes back to this idea that there's a whole meritocratic system on which neoliberalism is founded uh, the harder you work, the smarter you are, the more you do, the more you deserve money. So let's attain, you know, let's go for these goals, these objectives, which means that we're going to have children that we have to get in the best preschool so they can get the best schools and, and, and so forth that it perpetuates itself as well. And that's that's the only dream that you have. And if you're not part of that, then then you're you're marginalized, even though the majority is marginalized from society, uh, which is which is paradoxical. And, and I guess I want to bring up this idea that, that you talk about uh, the politicization of education and, and any time there's a neoliberal agenda anytime there is this system of, of meritocracy there is a, a political element there do we need to repoliticize education i guess we can't not right it's always going to be values driven but but how do we change these things does it can it be within the system is it outside how are, does that dynamic work mm -hmm. sure. so when i talk about politicization i i use the word politics in a very particular way which maybe isn't the way that it's commonly used in sort of colloquial colloquial language. Um, I am very interested in the work of the philosopher and historian Hannah Arendt, who um, worked on uh, understanding uh, totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, understanding what was it about uh, societies and, and cultures in uh, 1920s, 1930s Germany, for example, that allowed uh, Nazism to, to rise. And what's very interesting about Hannah Arendt's work is that um, you know she she talks about bureaucratization. She talks about this idea that you know very very much along the lines of what I was just talking about. You know the idea that 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 human beings sort of get turned into these cogs in a machinery uh, where they don't um, really um, feel or they don't really think about sort of the larger picture of what that machine is is doing. Um, you know, they, they're, they're giving their sort of partial task, partial place in society. And uh, so she argues, you know, that, that it's the rule of nobody in a way that then leads to the greatest evils um, in, in, human, in human history. And, and I think that logic is, is very much applicable to the Anthropocene. And it is, um, I think, to some extent, something that we are witnessing in real time right now. I think very few of us wake up in the morning and, you know, decide that we want to go and destroy the planet. Uh, 
but in, in reality, our, our actions, our collective actions um, are contributing to that, to that outcome. And, you know, historians writing further down the line might look at this, this time period and they might think, well, you know, this, this, is, this is the greatest evil that human beings have ever, have ever committed is the level of, of environmental destruction that they wreaked on the, on the planet. Um, and so, so it might be very similar to us asking, you know, looking back at Nazi Germany and asking, you know, how is it possible that millions and millions of people, educated, you know, smart people, uh, fell for Hitler, right? Um, that's the question that Hannah Arendt asks. And I think the way she tries to answer it uh, has a clue about how we might be able to answer um, the, the question about the current moment. And so this, this brings me back to the idea of politics. Um, you know, Hannah, Hannah Arendt defines politics as, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated definition, so I'm going to just focus on one facet of it and, and it's going to be very simplistic. But, but basically, one important characteristic that Hannah Arendt sees in, in politics is that it is about starting something new, starting something different. Um, and so, you know, she, she distinguishes political action from behavior behavior is something that's predictable, that is, that is um, predetermined in, in, in some ways. Whereas action, political action, is about, um, uh, is about actually uh, sort of putting your unique mark on something. Uh, it's about, um, you know, uh, really not, not just responding to, you know, the, the, the inputs that are coming, coming your way, you know, going back to the idea of, of uh, learning as dialogue, you know, it is, it is about you uh, also taking, you know, your, your internal resources and actually, and actually shaping, shaping that action. Uh, and importantly, it is also something that is, that is done with other people. So, you know, so, so Hannah Arendt argues that politics is, is never possible in isolation. Um, action is never possible in isolation. Uh, it is the outcome of what she calls agonistic pluralism, you know, the idea that pluralistically as, as a society, we agonize, we agonize over um, the challenges that we face, we agonize over the problems we're trying to resolve. And then we, through that, through the agonizing collectively, pluralistically, we then um, have some kind of a, uh, we're then able to take some kind of a political action, basically. Um, and so when I talk about politicizing education, I am talking about uh, this this kind of politics. I'm talking about um, politics that is that is um, uh, based on uh, human beings coming together, agonizing together as peers, as equals, um, and um, and then taking action. Uh, so it's not about a particular model. It's not about um, neoliberalism or capitalism versus socialism. I don't personally believe that simply replacing capitalism with socialism or with any other model is really the answer to the environmental crisis. Certainly when we look at the history of uh, you know, the Soviet Union, uh, there, there is, there's little hope uh, in, that, in that model when it comes to the kind of environmental impact that we saw. So I don't think, I don't think it's anywhere as simple as that. I, I think it is, uh, it is really about um, you know, empowering uh, empowering people to participate in what some academics call strong democracy as opposed to weak democracy. You know, strong democracy being, being um, a system where 
you know you're not simply just participating in elections you're not you're not simply just fulfilling the duties that your government asks of you but you are actively uh, thinking of yourself as a political being and that can make that can take different shapes for different people um, but um, at the end of the day uh, it leads to some kind of political political action and in that sense i think our current education systems are anti-political they're you know, they're, uh, they might be promoting a particular um, political model uh, that, you know, underpins the, the syllabi, the textbooks, the education policies in many countries. But by promoting a particular model that is political, uh, you know, you're, you're in an Arendtian sense, you are being anti-political because you are discouraging uh, that kind of agonistic pluralism and action that, that Hannah Arendt identifies as the really the, the sort of cornerstone of politics, um, and so that's that's what I mean. And by repoliticizing um, education, really, what I mean is uh, this this focus on imagination and and futures, then also leading to uh, political agency. You know, so so really uh, helping helping young people feel the sense of you know being political agents, having political power. Uh, not just because they might be able to vote for you know a particular candidate in, a, in an election, but because they are members of a society where the, the kind of political aspect of humanity, uh, you know, humanity's ability to to enact politics is valued, is encouraged. Um, you know, I I find it really really paradoxical that uh, we've got you know Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Um, you know, talking about AI and supercomputers and, you know, quantum, quantum computing and all these new technologies as potentially the solution to, to or part of the solution to the environmental crisis, when actually we've got billions of human brains out there, you know, which are way more complex and way more capable than probably any, com any computer we can construct. And we are choosing, you know, as, as society, we are choosing to um, sort of marginalize the vast majority of those brains and their ability to um, to contribute you know to politics in a, in a meaningful way um, and so I think we would do well to to really recognize this incredible assets that we have as as humans and to to build on it and it's funny you say that I mean it's it is uh, a 21st century deus ex machina of uh, this uh, belief that it's okay we can still soil you know destroy the environment because the, the, the solution's coming it's just around the corner we're going to get there uh it's it's, it's almost techno theistic where uh, we believe in, in in the god that that will of technology that will save us so we're going to be fine uh and, and let's just close our eyes and, and someone someone's going to invent something um t tell us more about your book what what is it coming out what is it about uh what are some of the things that are coming up on it um it, it's called uh, education for the anthropocene tell, tell us more about what uh what where your thinking is and how it unravels? Mm -hmm. Sure, um, it's, it's it's coming out next year with uh, the MIT Press, and um, it is basically uh, you know uh, sort of a both a philosophical overview of, of many of the things we've actually talked about, um, but it's also it's an ethnography. You know, it's 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 a story. Uh, it's a story of um, a community in South Africa and a community in India um, where uh, you've got. You know, young people going through education systems, and so it looks at you know what happens in those classrooms. What's really interesting about India and South Africa is that both of those countries have a constitutionally 
guaranteed rights to a clean environment in their constitutions. So they're actually very progressive in, a, in, a, in that sense. You know, many countries don't, don't have that um, value sort of reflected in, in their constitutions. Uh, and because of that, these countries also have a lot of policy frameworks um, around sustainability, around um, also specifically sustainability uh, being promoted through education. And um, I suppose, you know, what the book calls out is the sort of hypocrisy of that, um, you know, of those, of those frameworks, um, because when you actually look at what's happening um, on the ground, it is, um, it is a very different picture, you know, it is, it is much more along the lines of what we talked about, you know, along the lines of discouraging independent thought and imagination and politics in an Arendtian sense. But the book also traces those, those trends uh, and traces those forces, um, you know, back to history and, um, you know, looks at the impact of uh, European colonialism, uh, of um, also these, these neoliberal models of education that, are, that have been spreading globally uh, over the last few decades. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily sort of say that, you know, it's, it's the fault of India and the fault of South Africa that, that this, is, this is happening. It's, it's really using these, these two uh, places as, um, as, as an example, as a sort of case study in what is a global phenomenon and what affects, I think, uh, just about every country in, in, some, in some way. Um, but the book then also uh, tries to offer you know, a bit of a bit of an alternative. And that's, that's where the focus on uh, social movements and um, environmental activism comes in. Um, so it, it looks at uh, a couple of different uh, environmental social movements, um, and tries to basically conceptualize them as, as uh, types of education. So essentially arguing that, uh, you know, education is not the same as schooling. You know, there's education that, that occurs outside of schools and uh, recognizing that and looking at what some of those people who don't call themselves educators, but in fact are educators, uh, you know, what they're doing might actually uh, serve as an inspiration for what we should be doing in schools. So uh, that's where the book maybe tries to strike more of a hopeful tone to actually suggest that uh, you know some of these some of these th things that it talks about are already occurring, they're already happening. Uh, they're maybe not happening in these spaces where we would expect them to happen, um, but nevertheless they are happening. And so we have uh, sources of inspiration. You know, we we have places we can look to, uh, to to see what educating for the Anthropocene might look like. Uh, we are not starting from scratch. You know, we we do we do have uh, amongst ourselves, uh, people who have been wrestling with questions of intergenerational justice, alternative futures, um, historical responsibility. We've had, you know, we, we have people who have been working on these issues for quite a long time, uh, you know, and, and they have thoughts and ideas that are helpful in understanding how we might be able to maybe transform our education systems uh, in, in a way that uh, we recognize that, you know, the Anthropocene actually is um, something that education needs to be responding to. Um, so it also tries to make a case for collaboration and for building bridges between activism and, and education. I think educators oftentimes see activists as, um, you know, these sort of 
anti-systemic elements that, that, that are disruptive um, and they don't necessarily think you know that that activists should be talked about in the classroom or shouldn't be invited you know to speak in classrooms likewise when you speak to activists they will oftentimes say that educators are part of the problem because they are um, sort of brainwashing kids into believing the sort of mainstream um, set of beliefs around um, you know environmental change and for example the technological solutions that we talked about so I think the two groups oftentimes uh, remain disconnected and don't necessarily talk to each other, which is a shame because I think that um, there is a, there's a lot of potential for synergy and collaboration, um, and that part of the, the the idea, the project of educating for the Anthropocene is about that kind of synergy and that kind of that kind of collaboration. Excellent. Listen, thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to leave it open to you right now. This is a little bit the et cetera section. If there's anything on your mind or anything that uh, that uh, you'd like to get out there as well that, that we haven't covered, uh, just over to you as, as just an open open space for you to, to express yourself. Is there, is there anything on your mind? Sure. Well, I think I think we've uh... You know we've covered quite a lot um and of course you know i could i could talk about these these topics for for hours but maybe maybe the only the only thing i would say is that um i i find you know that a lot of these ideas that i was just mentioning um they, they tend to be uh sort of marginalized you know in in many spaces including in academia uh, i think there's something about also the, the academic culture of, uh, you know, the kind of output maybe that is valued in academia um, that um, perhaps discourages, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, alternative futures, looking at um, learning from activists, learning from indigenous populations and, and, and so on. There are not a ton of researchers that I'm aware of that are working on these, on these topics or who even necessarily see them as as worthwhile i think we've by and large accepted this this narrative of uh you know technology as as panacea and i think there's a lot more focus and a lot more lot more attention uh, being being paid to um you know technological technological solutions and so for you know for anyone who's who's listening to this and uh who maybe you know is thinking about their next project, you know, whether they are a an academic or whether they are, you know, an educator or or, or anyone else in, in any walk of life who uh, maybe hasn't thought about, uh, you know, working working on these on these questions, I, I would just encourage you to to go ahead and 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 do that, um, you know, even if it's difficult, even if it might feel like swimming against the stream sometimes. I just think it's important that we do this kind of work. And, um, you know, I'm certainly always open to collaborations. Uh, so, if, you know, if anyone uh, is, is interested in, in exploring that, you know, do get in touch. Um, but, I, but I do think that in, in general, uh, you know, we, we do need to pay more attention to these, uh, to these questions that we talked about today. Thank you so much. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, my website, petersutoris.com. Uh, has my research, it has links to my, to my books, my articles, and it also has my contact details. So that's, that's how, that's the easiest way. Great, thanks so much. Okay.
This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coming Up Thinking. I want to thank you for listening to our episode. And as always, we welcome your comments www.coconut-thinking.design is our website. We look forward to anyone who wants to connect with us. We're also on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, we are going to have uh, Chris Amenage um, next on the show. And he has so much to bring in terms of thinking about connecting educators and people just on the fringes of education and industry uh, towards a common purpose of uh, making experiences of learning so much stronger. So look forward to that episode. I hope um, you will enjoy it. I'm sure you will. He's got so much to say. And in the meantime, um, again, just give us a shout. Looking forward to your thoughts. We will continue to have episodes and writings about posthumanism, biocentrism. Uh, if you're interested, um, please get in touch with me. If you're not interested, uh, I'd still love to have a conversation with you about anything, um, any books uh, that you're reading, anything that uh, might be uh, uh, relevant to this conversation, not relevant to this conversation. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.